Welcome to another episode of Block Streets Around the Block Podcast. I'm your host, Elaine Ramirez, and I'm a journalist covering startups, cryptocurrency, and blockchain for Bloomberg and Forbes. Around the Block is a series of conversations with thought leaders from around the space. On this episode, I speak with Kyle Simani, one of the managing partners at Multicoin Capital. I caught up with him during San Francisco Blockchain Week. We spoke about how he discovered cryptocurrency through Ethereum, the importance of writing in his growth as a thought leader and an investor, and Multicoin Capital's views on the EOS blockchain. It's a great episode, but before we get into that, if you haven't already, head over to the Blockstreet Twitter account and let us know who you think we should have on next. That's at BlockstreetHQ. You can also find it in the show notes. And for one final note, if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It'll really help the show. Here's my conversation with Kyle Simani. Kyle, thanks so much for being with us. Elaine, super excited to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So could you just tell us a bit about how you got involved in the crypto craze in the first place? Uh, yeah, so um, my last startup, um, I started it in May of 2013. We built software for Google Glass for use by surgeons. I know Glass was not a very popular consumer product, but it was actually a pretty interesting tool. I for, thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool, and I thought it was really cool for people who have a hands-on job. Um, so that startup group was pretty successful up until the moment that Google killed Google Glass, at which point I had a minor problem. Um, obviously, I felt the pain of platform risk. Um, anyways, after Google kind of ended the Glass program, ultimately ended up getting acquired, uh, and I found myself unemployed in January of 2016, uh, and I discovered Ethereum in March of 2016. Um, I knew I wanted to do another startup, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and uh, I was just poking around the internet, like looking for ideas and inspiration, and I discovered a few different teams. Uh, I think one of them was Augur that was building on top of Ethereum, and I was like, what's this Ethereum thing? And that's kind of what really got me into crypto. I had heard of Bitcoin previously, but I'd never gotten into it in a serious way. Um, but, but Ethereum is what I really kind of pulled me in. And so I spent a lot of time um, kind of over the first th the next three months just learning about the history of Bitcoin, the history of Ethereum, what these things are, how they work, what they can enable. And I realized in that kind of time frame that Ethereum was going to be a really important piece of technology. And that's kind of when I, when I started to really um, fall down the crypto rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. The rabbit hole, we all all familiar with the rabbit hole. What was it about Ethereum that drew you in? Uh, I, so there were kind of two things that drew me to it. The first was, I, you know, I felt the pain of platform risk, right? Google had literally basically ended my business when uh, they ended the last project. And I realized with Ethereum, it's this open decentralized platform. No one can take it away from me. Uh, and so that pain to me was very real, and I understood that. Um, and the second thing that really drew me to Ethereum was in my uh, life before I started Pristine, I worked at a company building software for hospitals, um, specifically electronic medical records. And kind of one thing that I learned about hospitals at, at that time was, um, right, every time a doctor would place an order for a drug, every time a, a, someone would administer a drug, every time they would draw your lab, your blood for lab results, whatever, like I understood basically because my job, like how all these actions created entries in the database and the database kind of ran the hospital. And so I became, I came to think of a hospital as just a giant database and like all these actions would just like feed information flows, you know, through this database. And then from there, if you extrapolate out, you realize very quickly that actually every single business on the planet is just a giant database. Um, and there's people on top of this database that do things, but then all of these actions in the real world are just creating database entries in, in some system somewhere. And when I saw Ethereum, the analogy that kind of clicked for me 
was just as every single business is a database with people on top of it, I realized that I believe every financial institution will become a smart contract with people on top of it. Those two things, kind of the, the open platform and then the fact that the smart contracts would really become the, the foundation that all financial institutions are based on, that like is when the light bulb went off is, hey, this is going to be a big deal. Mm, okay. And so once you started getting into the concept of this, what did you do? Uh, I just started spending time reading, learning, and then investing my own money. I did that for almost a year. And in May of 2017, made the decision to, to work in the space professionally and decided to launch a fund. And that is Multicoin? That's Multicoin. Okay. Multicoin went live August 1st, 2017. Okay, and Multicoin has an investment philosophy of um, focusing heavily on the tech innovation part of it. How important are the other factors, such as market conditions and product market fit, when you're selecting your companies? Yeah, so if we want to invest in a particular asset, we don't really care about um, market cycles or market timing. We develop the conviction around, you know, hey, we think this is an important piece of technology, um, and that's pretty independent of market cycles. How aggressively we choose to invest, whether we put 1% on the fund or 5% on the fund or 15% on the fund, that is going to be more relevant, uh, more a question that will be based more on market timing. But the fact of, hey, are we bullish this asset? Do we want any exposure at all? That, that decision is made pretty independently uh, of market timing. So could you walk me through um, the steps of uh, how you choose your companies or your investment philosophy? What we want to do is we always want to develop a, a pretty coherent thesis around making an investment. Um, so we have a, a few kind of generic theses we already hold, and we see a number of companies that, that kind of uh, come into our purview that, that match those, and so we typically make those investments. Uh, and then occasionally we'll, you know, someone will come to us with an idea we never really considered, um, and if we can really develop a coherent thesis around that, we'll, we'll also kind of pull the trigger there. You know, kind of the things we look for is pretty typical venture capital style thinking. So, okay, what's the problem they're claiming to solve? What, how does the solution work? Um, who's the team building it? Are these people qualified to build the thing that they say they're building? You know, if it works, how big can it get, right? How big is the market opportunity um, at play? Um, so those are the kinds of basic questions we ask. And then from there, kind of develop the conviction to, to make an investment. Um, I'd say within the crypto, you know, there's like, for example, there's a lot of smart contract platforms. So we have a very generic thesis developed that we think smart programmable money is going to become, uh, like, I think it's going to be worth tens of trillions, of, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars in, on a long-term time horizon. And we believe that thesis pretty strongly. And so, for example, a lot of teams come, come to us and say, hey, look, we have this new smart contract platform with novel ideas X and Y and Z. For there, they don't really need to pitch us on the general idea of like why smart contract platforms matter or like that. We're already pretty bought into that. So those dialogues typically are, are a lot more detailed and technical around like, okay, you're claiming you've solved charting, for example, or you're claiming um, you, know, you can cram more data with some sort of novel data compression into a block or whatever. And so these teams have these di kind of different technical ideas on how they can deliver um, asymmetric outcomes in the smart contract platform race. And so those dialogues tend to be a lot more technical, whereas um, that, that can happen because you know, we're bought into smart contract platforms kind of more broadly. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular projects or missions that really interest you or any problems that you're particularly interested in solving? Um, I mean, I, I think by far the two biggest technical problems in crypto are scalability and privacy. Um, and like if we can nail those two things, um, I think kind of everything else will is just order magnitude less, t at least technically difficult. Um, and so those are the things that we spend most of, I'd say, our mental energy thinking about. Um, learning from people, building, understanding what are the pros and cons, and you know, 
we're watching now a dozen teams working on kind of different solutions to these problems, seeing how fast they're progressing, are the solutions working? Those are really the two, the two big things is how do we scale blockchains and how do we make these things private? Because a world that like all transactions are public is actually like not a good future to live in. Hmm. Okay. And so before we get into some of the projects that you're working with, I was interested in some things that you have said about um, ways that your writing has helped you get uh, pristine and then your crypto fund multi-coin off the ground, which I found was interesting. Why did you think that writing was so important for you? Um, so in 2012, I was working for a company building these electronic medical records for these hospitals. Um, and I had been reading all the tech blogs, you know, the, the tech crunches and venture beats and all that stuff. I had been reading all the blogs from the VCs, guys like Mark Suster and Fred Wilson and Chris Dixon and Mark Andreessen and all these people. I had been reading all of their, their blogs for years. I loved kind of software tech, startup world, whatever. And in 2012, I was growing frustrated at the EMR company. Uh, and I knew I wanted to start my own thing. I didn't really yet know what I wanted to do. Um, I made a New Year's resolution going into 2013 that I would write three blog posts per week. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna write, just literally emulation, like no thinking very hard about cause effect, just just emulation. I did it, I wrote 156 blog posts um, that year. And as a result of that, I started Pristine in May of 2013. Um, my writing helped you know, get like featured in a lot of the health IT blogs. At the time I, I became a writer for um, the most prominent health IT blog um, out there, it's called HIS Talk. Um, that obviously helped like grow my, my brand profile. All of our customers kind of came to know who we were. A lot of our early investors at Pristine found me through through my writing. So I mean, it was it was definitely very value creative in ways that I couldn't really have forecasted when I got started. Um, but actually, even more important than all of those things that happened was it just taught me a how to write well and b how to write quickly. Um, writing like getting into the mode of writing is just very difficult and like for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I literally I forced myself to write 156 essays in one year. And by doing so, it just like, I now can sit down, like an idea can pop into my head and like I can write a first draft in 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, and for most people, it's just, it just takes two, three, four times as long to, to get there, uh, literally because they're just not as practiced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, three, four years later, after I started doing this, got into crypto, um, like again, I'd be reading stuff, learning stuff, talking to people, I'd have ideas for crazy blog posts and started writing those as well. So that whole writing process um, and publishing yourself has helped your branding, of course, and your thought leadership, perhaps. Do you think that it's made you a better investor? So um, one thing I've discovered is I, I don't really think I understand a, an idea until I'm able to write it down in a truly like coherent like way. And forcing myself to write it down in a way that's presentable publicly it just like gives you a level of clarity of your thought that isn't otherwise it's a little bit fuzzier. Um, and so developing that coherence um, is helpful as an investor. Conversely, again, this is something people don't see is like probably 20% of the blog posts I write, I throw away um, because like I thought I had a good idea. I like try to write it down and flesh it out and it ends up that like it wasn't. You don't realize that until you try and write it down. Um, and so like, let's say I made investment decisions based on those, the those theories without really trying to like fully flesh it out, those likely would have been bad investments. Um, Right, and so that like level of, of um, rigor is like really, really helpful. And, and then the third way that um, writing, I think it helps make me a better investor is, you know, I put these ideas out there and then like, people respond and give me feedback. Um, and that feedback is extremely valuable. Um, these days, typically every time we write a blog post, I'll hear from between 10 and 30 different people 
who will take time to write thoughtful responses. Um, some of them are, are two sentences, some of them are six paragraphs. And like I, I always go to read, make sure to read all of them because these people have said, hey, this is cool and they have ideas X, Y, and Z. Uh, and again, that helps us refine our thinking about wh whatever the subject matter is. So um, writing, I can say pretty objectively, has helped make us better investors in a lot of different ways that are non-intuitive um, on the surface. Right. I think I remember um, you speaking recently um, and saying that um, the way that we can really increase adoption in blockchain and cryptocurrency is to build apps that you don't notice that it's actually on blockchain and cryptocurrency. It's all about communicating the end value for the user, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, you're probably more empathetic to what the end user needs because of that. Yeah, right. I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's a famous Steve Jobs quote or Alan Kay, I forget who, uh, but it's something like, right, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? And like like the iPhone today feels like magic. It's just so simple. You have a little bit of icons. You click the icons. It absolutely. I mean, it's a very beautiful, simple thing. Face ID, right? Touch ID. Like these were all super advanced and they just make the whole thing very seamless. And the reality is with, with, with crypto and blockchain today is like we're, we are not yet quite able to deliver experiences that are you know so advanced that they're indistinguishable from magic. But I suspect at some point in the next few years, um, it will become feasible for most developers to be able to deliver these kinds of experiences um, such that you know people can actually own assets and they don't rely on, on someone else's server somewhere saying, no, I'm giving you rights to this asset, but I still own it. But it actually, you know, in the blockchain world, you can actually own digital assets. Mm -hmm. um, and you know those the technical barriers between here and there are not insurmountable. Like they're all fundamentally solvable problems, um, and they'll they'll get solved. Mm -hmm. So you've been writing a lot about EOS and also investing in EOS related uh, companies, uh, including Aurora. What is it? Uh, I've never had anyone talk about EOS on my podcast before. Could you walk me through what is it about EOS versus Ethereum or blockchain that you think is solving more problems? Um, yeah, so EOS is a blockchain um, like Bitcoin or Ethereum. EOS is probably really directly competitive with Ethereum. Um, we, we made a pretty large investment in EOS starting late last year and added more earlier this year. Our, our bullish take for, for EOS is that um, you know there are a lot of applications of blockchains. Um, in general, you can call like what blockchains are is like a neutral database. Um, and, and neutral here is, is a loose term. But like a Facebook-owned database is pretty clearly biased by Facebook, and obviously Facebook controls what, what goes in and what goes out and all the rules around it. Same thing with Google or whatever else. Um, the first application of, of a neutral database, turns out, was money. It was just a ledger to track track balances of who, who owns what. Um, you know, Dan Larimer and the EOS team realized there's a lot of other interesting applications beyond just a ledger of, of who owns what, um, where you might want to have a neutral database. So you can pretty quickly imagine things like lists of maps of who owns real estate, um, things like if you wanted to have a, a truly public social social media feed so that it was not owned by Twitter or Facebook, um, if you wanted to do something with like routing and mapping of like cars on the road, like these are the kinds of things where you might not want a single company to own the database and you want kind of a public neutral forum by which all this data can, can be managed. Um, and, and so these are the kinds of applications that EOS is really designed to accommodate. Um, Bitcoin is designed really to be state-free money. Ethereum is basically state-free money that's like also programmable, but because of the extremes they, like Ethereum goes to, um, to like be as censorship resistant as possible, uh, it just makes the system much less performant. 
And if you want to deliver any form of engaging high-performance consumer application, like you just really can't build those on Ethereum today. Um, there's a lot of smart people in the Ethereum ecosystem trying to, to make that possible, but it, like today it is, it is not. And the EOS team has said, look, we're going to like change a lot of uh, fundamental assumptions in system design and architecture and really um, gear it towards building these types of applications that don't necessarily need to be fully censorship-resistant money, but that can allow people to build performant applications on a neutral public database. And um, like just looking at how, how many software developers clearly want to build in this space, um, it seems pretty clear to me that like EOS has made a set of, of technical trade-offs that are much more in line with the kinds of things that most people want to build. So, um, you know, we've been pretty excited about EOS for a long time uh, for basically that reason, is that we think it's just, it's much better suited for building uh, performant, um, usable end-user software. You mentioned technical trade-offs. Could you elaborate? Yeah, so the, the biggest, you know, trade-off, and this is the source of both EOS's greatest strength and its greatest criticism, um, whereas, if you look at Bitcoin today, there's something like 100,000 nodes that run the big, manage the Bitcoin network. The Ethereum network is something like 30 or 40,000 different nodes that maintain the network. Um, in EOS today, it's something that are on, the, are on the order of 80 nodes or so that maintain the network. Um, there are 21 core block producers and another 80 or so um, that kind of watch them, so, so to speak. And you know, because the system is much more centralized in terms of nodes um, in the system, um, it's, it's much more performant. But that's also the source of its criticism by folks in the Ethereum community who say, hey, this thing is too centralized. And so, you know, its greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. But because of that strength, latency is very low and, and um, throughput is very high. And, and conversely, in, in Ethereum, latency is pretty high and throughput is pretty low. So uh, because of that single basic design philosophy, um, EOS delivers much more performance applications. So Ethereum people are arguing that EOS is too centralized? Mm -hmm. the, the irony is, <laughs> I, I am very well aware of the irony of this, okay. of this statement. Just making sure I understood the um, scenario there. <laughs> One of the funny things about um, EOS is if you look at all of the criticisms Bitcoin people have leveled and continue to level against Ethereum are the exact same criticisms that Ethereum people level against EOS. You know, the hypocrisy is everyone's a hypocrite, like whatever. Okay, fair enough. We'll leave it at that. Do you think that because you believe that EOS is more functional, um, you think it will take precedent or um, more developers will adopt the EOS blockchain over Ethereum in the short term, long term? I think in the next 12 months, we will see people deliver much more functional, usable software on top of the EOS uh, blockchain than Ethereum. Uh, and that will help pe people, the haters, realize, hey, look, Maybe I disagreed ideologically, but like reality is this thing works. It works as advertised. You can deliver solutions. Um, and there are things to build here. There are a lot of people, for example, gaming. In gaming world, you don't need like to be state-free censorship resistant. The goal is to be able to have you know items that can move between games, make sure that the, the publishers don't um, take away your items, whatever. And that level of user sovereignty is doable on EOS. And then you don't have to deal with any of the additional complexities of Ethereum, of off-chain and Plasma and all these other things. And you can just work on EOS natively, and all the performance you could ever want is there. And so, like, like that's just one example of like a market that can draw hundreds of millions of users very quickly. Mm, okay. So you mentioned the gaming industry benefiting from the EOS network. What other industries might we see benefit from this particular blockchain? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of people play with, with gambling types of applications. I think also the idea of tokenizing securities like makes a lot of sense on EOS. Um, you know, right? Bitcoin and Ethereum are supposed to be, you know, censorship resistant even against government um, interference. 
Um, well, like securities are by definition a legal construct. Um, securities only exist because Uncle Sam says securities exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like putting That's another topic, <laughs> putting, putting securities on Ethereum is just like, again, it's like it's like a funny mental concept. Um, not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's like it's kind of a, a interesting irony. Um, if you don't need that level of censorship resistance, like why not put this on a platform that's more performance? So like tokenizing securities, in my view, is going to happen, is much more likely to happen on a platform like EOS than on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And way back when you did not invest in EOS and you have said that you maybe regret that, what was it that you couldn't buy about EOS back then? Yeah, so I think EOS launched was either May or June of 2017. And um, at the time, yeah, I think I just drunk a little bit too much of the Ethereum Kool-Aid and the, uh -huh. Ethereum, the Ethereum maximalist really made the argument, hey, this is too centralized and I really bought into that. And uh, it took me probably six months to really realize that I was being a little bit too dogmatic in my thinking um, and that these things are gray and that path dependency matters. Um, maybe EOS is decentralized today. That doesn't mean it has to be too centralized tomorrow. If, if there's a critical mass of people building things on EOS because it's just more performance, like other elements of the system can change over time. And so I, I found that a lot of the criticisms being leveled against it, while valid, um, were very reflective of, of a single point in time view and not reflective of like the fact that these things can change and that momentum matters. Uh, and so over the you know latter half of 2017, my views started to evolve. Mm -hmm. What is the blockchain world you want to see? <laughs> when you come to understand how the existing financial system works, you realize like, how little control people have over their own assets and the fact that like the fact that you even quote unquote own any of your assets is like kind of a joke in the modern financial system because you don't own your assets like someone else owns them and they happen to give you credit for the fact that you theoretically own them um and like i have a very strong desire to see a world in which people actually own the assets that they they claim they own um and like crypto is the only way to get there so i'm very excited to see that that come to fruition Okay, great. Thank you. Kyle Simani, thank you so much for joining me. Elaine, thanks for having me on the show. This was a blast. Okay, that's it. A big thanks to Kyle for taking the time to chat, and an even bigger thanks to all of you tuning in to this episode of Around the Block. As I said at the top of the show, if you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to the Block Street Twitter account, that's at Block Street HQ, for a bunch of great content. And if you want to find me personally on Twitter, I'm at Elaine Gija. Again, thanks for listening. I'll catch you on the next episode. This is Block Streets Around the Block, hosted by me, Elaine Ramirez. It was produced by Kenny Ferreira with research by Johan Yoon. Executive produced by Brian Lee and Ian Cho. This episode was recorded in San Francisco, California. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you liked the show. 